If you would, take your Bibles then and open them to Romans chapter 5. Our text today is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I want to take a couple of minutes, though, here to get our bearings in the book of Romans. It is a long letter, one of Paul's longest And as I have pointed out along the way, it's dense. It is like a dense forest. It is closely packed with a lot of rich truths. And it's possible to dig down into those rich details and really uh, get into the text and all of the intricacies, if you will, and lose sight of the larger map. It's good to go back up and take a bird's eye view so that we don't lose a sense of the big idea or the big argument in the book of Romans. Paul sets forth the central theme of Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we have said that the central theme to the book of Romans is the power of the gospel. And following this introduction then, this setting forth of the theme for everything else he wants to say, the book of Romans really can be broken down into four main parts. Or sections. Now, this doesn't include the introduction, okay, in early chapter one, or a conclusion in the end of chapter 15 and chapter 16, okay, but the main body of the letter has really four sections. The first we see in chapter one, beginning with verse 18 all the way through the end of chapter four, we see the gospel's heart, the heart of the gospel, and that is justification by faith. God restores rebellious sinners to a right relationship with himself by first providing Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sins, a a redeemer. We talked about the word propitiation. Jesus, by dying on the cross, takes the wrath of God on our behalf. The wrath of God that is rightly being revealed from heaven against all of man's unrighteousness. We receive this sacrifice, we receive this redemption by believing. And when we accept it by faith, God declares us just. God declares us righteous in his own eyes. God is the The judge of the universe in his courtroom declares us right and just before him. That declaration of righteousness, that justification of us as sinners is a free gift of grace. Paul makes it clear that that working cannot bring it. Uh, We cannot achieve it. We cannot purchase it. There's no ritual that can bring it about. It is only by grace. And so at the heart of the gospel is this justification by faith and faith alone. The second section then begins in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the gospel's promise. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. Those four chapters. This is the gospel's promise. The assurance of of glory. These four chapters are dominated with this idea, this teaching that we will be glorified. That if God has justified us, if he has made us right, he will finish this work of salvation. That salvation is now. That work has already begun. We are already declared just. But one day, when history is over and God judges the world, there we will be glorified. 
And so you can see then that with Romans 5, verse 1, we begin this new section. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and as Moises pointed out last week, uh, Paul spills out these blessings of justification. He then uh, explains how it is that Christ has overcome the curse. That's our text today. Chapters 6 and 7 then address our situation in this life. Because if we're justified and glory is promised, what do we do with the power of sin right now? Because even though we are already declared righteous before God and we belong to him completely, the powers of the old life and the old realm, the old kingdom continue to influence us. And so there is conflict with sin, with temptation, with the flesh. How are we to understand that if we've already been justified and received all of these blessings, especially that we stand in grace? How can we stand in grace and yet have to fight and resist sin? In chapter 8, then, Paul declares... In verse 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in chapter 8 to declare victory over and over and over again. And he crescendos at the end of of Romans chapter 8 with the great conquering love of God that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that God in his sovereignty is he has called us and justified us, he will also glorify us. That victory is guaranteed. From there then, in the third section of the book, verse, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, we see the vindication of the gospel. The gospel's vindication. And this is founded on God's faithfulness. Now, I use the word vindicate because in these chapters, Paul justifies all of his claims about the gospel. Almost as though someone is going to argue back with him, look, Paul, you have said that God in his sovereignty has chosen us, he has called us, he has justified us, he has glorified us. That nothing can separate us from his love. That we have victory ultimately over sin and temptation. And that even now we are to to reckon ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in the person of Jesus. If that's the case, how do you explain what happened to Israel? Wasn't Israel God's elect people? Wasn't Israel chosen out of all the nations? If God loved Israel, if he chose them, if he made promises to Israel, like you're saying he does to Christians, but then he rejected Israel, how can we count on the saving power of the gospel? And we can see these doubts that Paul is responding to in chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then again in chapter 9, verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? Has God somehow reacted unrighteously toward this people group to a nation with whom he made this covenant? By no means, he says. That is the weight of what Paul is getting at in those chapters. So Israel's, and he even goes on to explain then, Israel's unbelief, their rejection of their Messiah and the covenant actually demonstrates the reliability of the gospel and its power to save. And you say, how can that be possible? You got to wait till we get there, okay? Because that's too much for this morning. But here in those chapters, Paul peels back the veil in the sovereign thinking and working and plans of God and explains how that can be. Then the last section of the book of Romans is the gospel's work. In chapters 12 through 15, we see the work of the gospel, and that is the pursuit of transformation. And most of us are very familiar with how this 
part of the book of Romans opens in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And from there he goes into how we are to live together as a community of faith, that God has gifted all of us and each of us to build each other up, how all of that is to be done in love and that love is the fulfillment of the law. And then how we're to be citizens, okay? If we're the special community and gifted and loving each other, how do we exist in the world? Chapter 13, what about the government? What about the structures of this world and this life? And then in chapter 14, he goes into what are these things that we argue about as Christians? There are some things that are matters of conscience, We would call them gray areas. So in all of this, then, Paul is moving us toward pursuing this work of transformation, the work of the gospel. Now, that we have this kind of bird's eye view and where we're going, let's get back to our text. That was all for free, okay? Let's get back to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And join me as I read there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come." But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through, one's, uh, through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, as we come to you today, to these verses, we open our hearts and our minds to your word. In humility, we receive it. With the help of your spirit, we comprehend it. By faith, we pursue the transformed living to which it calls us. Amen. Okay, so in these verses, Paul is returning to a universal perspective, isn't he? We saw this early in chapter 1. Paul is, is talking about the entire human race and its rebellion against God, its suppression of the truth. And here again, he comes back to this universal state of things, this universal reality, by explaining why the human race is the way we are. In a way, he is really explaining, he's even going back before chapter 1, explaining the foundation of why man suppresses the truth, why the human race has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for all of the things that God has created. 
He's going back to explain how humanity has come to be under the wrath of God, which is being revealed from heaven. Why is human nature what it is? It is because of Adam. It is because of Adam's sin. It is because corruption is passed on to us and its consequence, death. What Paul says here explains why our children lie without us having to teach them to do so. And it explains why armies go to war. It is because of who we are, our condition as a human race. In fact, it is our sin and our wrongdoing and that it is natural for us that really proves the the validity of the gospel. I remember having a conversation with someone that I worked for many years ago. Um, I actually worked in a retail clothing store during the holidays one year, and I was speaking with the manager, and she was talking about um, she was talking about her little boy. She had two younger boys, and the issue of right and wrong came up, and I said, I said, yeah, it's proof that we're born wrong. We're born wanting to do wrong. And she looked at me and I said, did you teach your boys to lie to you? Did you teach them to fight the way they're fighting? She goes, no. And I said, we don't have to teach that. We do that naturally. This reality is, a, is, a, is an opening for the gospel. Because the gospel explains why we are the way we are. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has overcome Adam's legacy of sin and death. Jesus has undone the curse. Where death once reigned, life now reigns. And so this contrast between Adam and Christ dominates these verses. You won't find a to-do list here for this week, okay? What we do find is the answer to one of life's most fundamental dilemmas. Why is humanity the way it is? So in verses 12 through 14, we see death's reign through Adam. And in verses 15 through 21, we see life's reign through Christ. That's how this this paragraph breaks down, okay? So the first question then is, how did death come to reign? How did death come to reign over the human race? We see, first of all, that sin entered the world through Adam. Paul presents us with a logical sequence of things here. And the first step is sin entered the world through Adam. Sin came into the world through one man, verse 12. The event itself is found in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve and then Adam eat from the one tree that God had commanded them to not eat from. And throughout these verses, Paul calls that sinful act, that act of eating the fruit when God had said, do not eat from this one tree, Genesis chapter 3. He calls this sinful act the trespass. One man's trespass. That one man's sin and one man's disobedience. It is through one man, Adam, and Adam's one disobedient act that sin entered the world. The world meaning the entire human race beginning to end. It isn't through Eve, if you have that question. It isn't through Eve's sin, but Adam's. Because Adam, two reasons really. Adam was created first, and he is the father of the entire human race. Even Eve was created out of Adam. Also, if you read the Genesis account, God gives Adam the command before he creates Eve. Adam already had the boundary placed. You may eat from any tree in the garden except this one. Before Eve is created out of Adam. So Adam bears responsibility for Eve. 
He bears responsibility for the keeping of that commandment, and he bears responsibility for the whole human race who will come from him. He represented every one of us. Sin entered the world through Adam. Secondly, Paul then progresses in the the sequence here, death entered the world through sin. Death entered the world through sin. Also verse 12, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Death is the ultimate consequence for sin. God had warned Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You shall surely die. This was the the promise, the truth that God tells Adam that the serpent questions to Eve. Remember that? Did God really say, you shall not surely die? This is why God concludes his judgment on Adam in chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death entered the world through sin. And when the Bible talks about death, it sometimes speaks of physical death. This is obvious in Genesis that this is what God is talking about. Even though the physical death doesn't happen immediately, the process of dying began immediately. And because of Adam's sin, we are all headed toward death the moment we are conceived. The Bible also sometimes speaks of spiritual death, which is the spiritual state of a person as separated from God, without eternal life. Because of Adam's sin, we are all born in this spiritual state, dead to God, without any capacity or ability to somehow make ourselves alive to God. That's why God has to do it. But physical death and spiritual death really belong together. We are whole beings. And as we are born in a state of spiritual death, our physical beings are immediately on the road to physical death. And when Romans 5 speaks of the reign of death, it means death in total. It's speaking of an end in which we die with no hope of eternal life. Sin entered the world through Adam. Death entered the world through sin. And then Paul says, again, verse 12, death spread to all. Death spread to all. So death spread to all men because all sinned. So death's reign is universal. All men, that is all people, Mankind, the human race, no one is exempt from death. No one escapes it. Do you know anyone? Have you ever known anyone? Humanity likes to write stories of immortality. We like to create myths about fountains of youth, chalices that provide living water. We create these things. Because we know there is such thing as eternity in our hearts. We know that to be true. But those are fantasy. Nobody escapes death. I would even say this. Even the people within the Bible who were raised from the dead experienced death again. Except Jesus. There are a couple of exceptions where there were people who were just translated from this life right into the next life. Enoch, okay, Elijah. These, these men of God were just swept up and gone. God just took them home. But the human race dies. Everybody dies. Okay? 
And Paul presses this, this home in verses 13 and 14. Even before the law was given, before boundaries were explained, people died. Sin had entered the world and death reigned even when there were no commands to disobey. So, people who lived and died between Adam and Moses could not violate the law because it didn't exist. Nor could they transgress a commandment like Adam, who had been given a very specific commandment. This is what he means here when he says, those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So they didn't have the law, but it wasn't like the transgression of Adam. Because Adam had a clear commandment that he transgressed. And their sin, those who sinned between, Moses and, uh, between Adam and Moses, didn't have the effect of Adam's sin either. So if we go back to verse 12 then, we see that Paul actually gives us the cause for this death spreading though. It's spreading to all men. Do you see it there? We might expect Paul to say, so death spread to all men because Adam sinned. I mean, that's, that's his argument, isn't it? That's the point he's making. Adam sinned, therefore we... Also... But he doesn't say that. He says death spread to all men because all sinned. What this means is actually very debated. What is Paul actually talking about? Now, without getting down into all the details of various arguments, I just want to summarize it this way. I think this is the best way to understand what Paul means here. He means that we were, as the human race, represented in Adam and united with Adam in such a way that when Adam sinned, when he disobeyed God, we participated in his disobedience and incurred that guilt by being in position with him. It's the same relationship that Paul will explain is our relationship to Christ. When Christ died, we died in Christ. And when Christ rose from the dead, we were raised in him. We were raised in Christ. Now, we, we are placed in Christ because of our faith. We participate with Adam because we are human, because we come from him. Paul doesn't give us any more detail than that. He doesn't give us any more explanation than what he says here. He simply says that sin entered the world through Adam. Death entered the world through sin. Death spread to all because we all sinned. That isn't just all of the things you've done. It is that we somehow all sinned in that act that brought about the reign of death over the human race. And this sequence then reveals how death came to reign. Okay, sin entered the world through Adam. Death entered through sin. Death spread to all because all sinned. But the real focus of these verses is not Adam's sin. It isn't the reign of death. But really, Paul wants to get out how Christ undoes that curse and how Jesus brings about the reign of life. And the key is the relationship between Adam and Christ. It's at the end of verse 12. Look there again. Sorry, the end of verse 14. Adam is a type of the one who is to come or was to come. So Adam is a figure who points to Christ whose victory is superior to Adam's failure. And the type is that through Adam, one man and one sin. Sin entered the world, death entered through sin, sin spread to all. I mean, death spread to all. Through one man, life comes, life and grace and justification. That is how Adam is a type or a figure that points to Christ. But there is a difference, and this leads us to the second part then of this paragraph. How did life overthrow death? How did Christ overcome the curse? So 
Beginning with verse 15, then, we can follow Paul's logic back and forth as he contrasts Christ with Adam, how each of them as one man affects the many, the entire human race. But Paul says Christ has done just the opposite for us of what Adam did, where Adam's act, where Adam's failure brought death Jesus has brought life, a life that conquers death. So if we distill what Paul says here, we see that Jesus overthrows death, first of all, by the free gift of righteousness. The free gift of righteousness. Now, Paul mentions this free gift five times in these verses. In verse 17, he identifies it as the free gift of righteousness. This phrase, free gift, emphasizes the freeness of the gift because it must be given, it must be provided to us. It must be because our sinful condition requires it. Again, it captures all that Paul has said in chapters 1 through 4 about how it must be received by faith, that it cannot be Earned. It cannot be achieved. It is a free gift. And so he sets forth this contrast, right? Verse 15, this free gift is not like the trespass. Why? Because from the trespass, many died. The free gift has abounded for many. This is a, it is superior by degree. Jesus' work is greater. Jesus' work overcomes. Also, this free gift is not like the result. This is verse 16. It is not like the result of Adam's sin. Adam's sin brought condemnation for the entire human race. Jesus' free gift of righteousness brings justification. It brings the the making of righteousness. So it is superior in consequence. And it is superior in scope. Think about what Paul is saying here. Adam's one sin earned the condemnation of all. That's understandable. It's understandable that even one sin before a holy God would condemn, would bring condemnation. But... All of the untold number of sins, all of the indescribable weight of guilt for all ages, for all humanity, that that should be met with one act, with a free gift of righteousness defies human understanding. So that the great weight and multitude of our rebellion finds its remedy. We find forgiveness and restoration in one free gift given by the God against whom we rebel. That is the true miracle of miracles. And so Jesus overthrows death and brings about the reign of life by, first of all, this free gift of righteousness that is superior in every way. Secondly, Jesus overthrows death and brings life to reign by his own obedience. It is brought about by Christ's obedience. Verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19 is just as a parallel statement. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. One act of righteousness, one man's obedience. Where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Now, ultimately, Jesus' act of obedience was his 
death on the cross. It was going to the cross. And Philippians 2 tells us that. That he obeyed God even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Entire humiliation. Christ submitted himself to that point. But all of life, uh, all of Jesus' life was an act of obedience. Do you understand? Because Jesus never sinned, because he never disobeyed the Father, Jesus' entire life is an obedience that pleased God so that when he died on the cross, he died as an innocent sacrifice. This is this, this uh, contrast between Adam and Jesus is really explained or hit on by Luke. I want you to turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, to see how Luke makes sense of this. In chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Luke records Jesus' baptism. And Luke is very brief about it. He simply says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So we see the Son, we see the Spirit, and we see the Father. We see the Trinity. And both the Spirit and the Father endorse and validate the Messiah. And at stake in this statement, in this this vision of the Spirit descending on Jesus and the Father's voice being heard is a matter of sonship. This is my Son, my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Why? Because Jesus has obeyed perfectly to this point. Jesus has not ever violated one commandment mentally, emotionally. It's it's beyond our comprehension. We cannot understand what what that would be like because of what Romans 5, right? But Jesus has pleased the Father, and the Father endorses him. Then Luke goes where? Chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methethat, the son of Levi, the son of... and so on. And he gives this entire genealogy, and Luke starts with the immediate father, Joseph, and as supposed means that Joseph was not the biological, physical father of Jesus. We know that. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. It was a virgin birth. So, but he starts with Joseph and he works all the way back to whom? Verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of whom? Adam. Jesus is 100% man. He comes from Adam, but Adam here is noted to be the son of whom? God. Adam is the son of God in that there is nobody between God and the creation of Adam. There is no human father of Adam. God created Adam directly. We know this from Genesis, right out of the dust. Breathe life into him. But Adam is here called a son of God. So wait a second. We have Jesus being baptized. The spirit descends. The voice of the father speaks. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Luke then gives us a genealogy starting with Joseph all the way back to Adam, who is also called the son of God. So we have these two sons. We have Jesus with whom the father is well pleased. And we have Adam from whom Jesus must come to be 100% human. And then what is the next event in Jesus' life? Jesus has been baptized. 
Luke gives us this genealogy all the way back to Adam. Jesus is now authorized to begin ministry, except for one thing remains. And what happens? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this is Luke 4, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus must undergo a temptation. He must undergo a trial. Why? Because Adam, the son of God, failed. Jesus now is tempted by the very one who subverted Adam and Eve back in the garden. Do you see it? Sorry. Jesus must conquer where Adam failed. And he does. On every count, Satan's strategy is to get Jesus to be disloyal to the Father. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, could never do that. But Jesus is now found in the form of a man. He is now found as a son of Adam. And he is temptable. And yet he does not fail. He conquers. Each time he resists. And he relies on the Father entirely. Jesus is the loyal son, do you see? Jesus is the one who conquers. So Jesus' final act of obedience is going to the cross, but it began right here in terms of his formal ministry, his loyalty to God the Father, his conquering of the devil. It had already begun. He was already reversing the curse. And right after the temptation, chapter 4, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and was his custom, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. He's going to reveal who he was, who he is now. He's going public. But even before that, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus does what? He returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout, uh, through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And Jesus begins, as you go through here, he begins to heal. He begins to cast out demons. He's reversing the curse. He is showing he has the power and the authority and the validation from God to reverse it all. It will only cost him his life. And what is the result of this obedience? Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. So, Jesus conquers death. Life comes to reign by Christ's obedience. Thirdly and lastly, Life comes to reign by abounding grace. Comes to reign by abounding grace. Look at the grace of God, which is active in Christ's work. We've seen in verse 15, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. We see it in verse 17. Much more those who, receive, who will receive the abundance of grace. And we see it again in verse 20. Grace abounded all the more. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. So this, again, Paul is not introducing grace here. He's already talked about God's grace in chapters 1 through 4. It is God's active motion toward us when we are dead in sin to save us. It is God's riches toward us that cannot be deserved, earned, but must be received by faith and humility. And according to verse 20, it is the effect of the law that really 
proves how abundant God's grace is. The law, Paul says, increased sin. And he doesn't mean by that that it made more sin or that it made sin more sinful. What he means when he says that the law came to increase sin, he means that the law came to drag sin out of the shadows, out of the recesses. It came to drag sin out of its hidden places and expose it for what it really is. Its true nature, its devastation, its power over the human race. Even without the law, we were dying We knew that something was wrong. We knew there was right and there was wrong. The human race. But the law came along and shone a light on it and explained everything. Just how messed up and why there was the devastation there was for the human race. It brings sin out, it exposes it. But the law could not solve it. It could not reverse. It could not overcome sin. Only God's grace could do that. Only God's grace could do that. But Paul wants to make sure that we don't think that the law, by exposing sin, could somehow outpace grace that it could somehow become so, uh, such a, a dominant reality that God's grace could then, if the law comes to expose it, God's grace wouldn't be enough. That's why he says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That even now, I used this illustration a couple weeks ago, that not having the law, if you think about um, houses and property and their lines, their boundary lines, that before the law, there were no fences. We all had backyards, but there were no fences. And just because there were no fences didn't mean we weren't trespassing as we walked through other people's property. We were still trespassing. But when the law came, the fences went up, and the fences going up didn't stop us from climbing over them into other people's property and going ahead and trespassing the boundaries. We continued to do that. But now we had to make a conscious, deliberate decision knowing I am going to climb that fence. I'm going to cross over. I'm going to transgress. I know the law says this is right and this is wrong, but I'm going to go over and I'm going to do it anyway. That wickedness, that sinful nature is now exposed because the fence is there. That's made obvious. And because now we consciously are going over the fence and now we are disobeying and trespassing on purpose, does that make our sin more powerful and somehow less forgivable, somehow make us beyond grace? That's what Paul is making sure that. No, because even as we did that, even as we continued to consciously disobey God and do the wrong thing, grace just abounded. God took that into account. When Jesus went to the cross. No, grace abounds. So that we can't ever even in our pride say, well, I have crossed too many fences. I've just disobeyed. I see what, the, I see what God says about right and wrong. I see what God says about relationships. I see what God says about honesty. I say, And I've violated them all. And I've crossed so many fences knowing I was crossing fences, knowing I was disobeying that I'm beyond grace. That's not humility, that's pride. Because God says, my grace abounds. My grace abounds more. Jesus has overthrown the reign of death with grace and eternal life. Listen, when Paul talks here about the many, he isn't talking about the entire human race. But ultimately, every person belongs to Adam or to Christ. There is no third option. This and only this is the one true divide of the human race. Paul has already talked about culture, race, 
Racial divides don't count. Cultural divides don't count. Gender divides don't count. But faith versus unbelief, that is the one true divide in the entire human race. Listen, if you reject the free gift of righteousness, if you reject this abounding grace from Jesus Christ, then you belong to Adam. And you belong to that bondage. You belong to that curse. You remain under the curse of his disobedience. But Paul is saying the good news of the gospel that explains the condition of every human being and the entire human race, the good news that explains that is the good news that tells you that grace is provided, that grace is already at work and that life now reigns, that eternal life can be known. Amen. So, Lord, with you there is life. We sang it earlier. With you there is life. You have brought about the reign of life. And even here in your word, you say much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We must receive this free gift of grace by faith. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in the hearts of those who do not yet believe, whom you would call to yourself to know this transforming work the forgiveness of sins and the restoration, the redemption that is in your Son, who now holds all of life and grants eternal life to those who will trust in him. In your name we ask all of these things. Amen.